Blog Talk Radio. Kabbalah has fallen out of favor 
uh, is because Greek is an inflected language, whereas Hebrew is not. Now, that uh, may take a little explaining. What I mean by an inflected language is, is that, uh, that every, uh, every tense, uh, every past tense, present tense, uh, and, and uh, different, uh, different forms, different possessives, they all have different endings. Whereas in Hebrew, it, uh, it, 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 you don't uh, have that sort of thing. So the word, whatever the word is, is going to be the same regardless of the context in which you use it. Now, I know that's an oversimplification, but then that's essentially it. Which means that when you start doing gematria, you start doing numerology and all that, uh, you're much, much, it's much easier and more direct to use, to use Hebrew. But regardless of that, the Greek system very probably preceded the Hebrew. And all of this was emerged out of the matrix of Alexandria in the, in the centuries, a couple of centuries before Christ and, and a couple of centuries afterward. Uh, Alexandria was the hub of all of this. Um, and uh, although Marcus was, was a uh, Levantine, a Phoenician, if you will, uh, he probably probably did spend some time studying in Alexandria. Uh, all of the Gnostic scholars virtually did at one time or another. And uh, we we mentioned that that uh, his greatest contribution was the Soma Sophia, which we had uh, with a little help from from Dr. Ed Krupp at the at the observatory. We managed to fill out uh, Marcus's Soma Sophia from the uh, outline, the basic outline uh, that Arrhenius and Hippolytus um, gave us. And what the Soma Sophia is, is um, literally a Kabbalah of the Zodiac. It's, it, it's a Kabbalah of the Zodiac, and this is why... The 24 letters of the Greek alphabet were absolutely perfect for doing this because you have 12 signs of the zodiac, so you have 12 letters that Marcus applied uh, running, say, east to west, and then that gives you 12 letters for the northern hemisphere. And then you go around the way the ox plows, plus Tafferon, and you go... You go uh, west to east on the underside with 12 more letters. That gives you your full 24. And then you have all the letters that apply to the whole southern hemisphere. And you can't do that with the Hebrew alphabet because you only have 22 letters. Now, he, even Gershom Shalom, the great, uh, the great uh, Hebrew scholar, Kabbalah scholar, he, he admitted that the Hebrew alphabet had a shortcoming in that, in that area. But uh, so you see that, that Marcus was very, very anxious to apply the letters of the alphabet to the zodiac, and he also well, he went way beyond that. He 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 applied the letters to uh, to creation, to emanations, uh, to the elements, to the planets, to the vowels, to the uh, when you when you realize what this man did. And when he did it, you can't escape realizing that here we have the, one of the one of one of the fathers of the Kabbalah, whether either Greek Kabbalah or Hebrew Kabbalah. Um, and what we did, uh, based on uh, Hippolytus's commentary, which is a copy of Arrhenius's commentary, by the way, is we got the the basic layout, the letters of the um, of the, of the zodiac, the Greek letters, and you know you really don't have to be a rocket scientist to realize that that uh, if you have a if you have a globe, and they didn't use maps in those days, they used they used globes pretty much. If you had a celestial globe where the zodiac was in the position of the equator instead of going in a, a loop as it does, kind of up and around and if you if you have a globe that is uh, divided right around the middle uh, with the zodiac running where the 
where the moon's track would be ordinarily. Uh, the moon, of course, follows the celestial equator pretty much. But if you, if you straighten out and have the zodiac, and then you have the top uh, pole and the bottom pole are are the poles of the ecliptic, not not the actual magnetic pole, um, then you can take meridians, and if you're you know so inclined, you can take meridians and go up from these these signs, each one of them having 30 degrees, and you go all the way up to the pole, and then you just uh, go up there and divide that up and and put your put your uh, uh, your longitudinal lines uh, across your meridians and keep going up, and you have and then you have effectively cabalistically gridded the entire celestial sphere. Now this is obviously what Marcus intended to do, but but uh, and may have done it. He, he, I, I I think he probably really did it, but uh, Arrhenius and Hippolytus, both of them were angry fathers of the early Christian church, of the more conservative version of the Christian church that Constantine uh, forced upon us. Um, and they were intent only on discrediting Marcus. But they went into enough detail discrediting Marcus that Karen Berry was able to to write a whole book uh, reconstructing Marcus's Kabbalah from the from that, and we were able to reconstruct his Soma Sophia from from that. But uh, this is, of course, is kind of an example of of uh, one of the most one of the most um, well, you say infamous examples of this sort of thing is that. Uh, and the only thing we know about the Egyptian version of the Exodus we get from from the uh, the Ptolemaic Egyptian historian Manetho. Now Manetho was the last in Ptolemy's time. Manetho was the last Egyptian uh, educated Egyptian who could read hieroglyphics, believe it or not, in, in Ptolemy's uh, Greek. Greek Greco Egyptian world, uh, and they'd been ruled by the the Grecos for so long that it, that that there were hardly anybody left that could read hieroglyphics, and 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 Manetho was a scholar and, and you know, the last of the old Egyptian scholars, and he could. So Ptolemy, uh, who you know, Ptolemy was a was a a bibliophile, and he he wanted to have he wanted to he wanted to be a bibliophile in this an astrologer, and well, he wanted to collect everything from everybody, and he wanted to have it all translated into Greek, and he wanted to put it in the library. So he commissioned Manetho to write a history of Egypt in nine volumes. Well, that was a very popular book at the time. In other words, there must have been at least uh, 200 copies of it, at least in existence back then. Every single one of those sets of nine volumes have been destroyed. And the only the only record we have of Manetho is is, is his critics later who were later who who had tried at the time to discredit him and that's all that has survived. And Josephus of course being being one. So we we get the Egyptian version of the of the Exodus which which Josephus tries very hard to discredit. And uh, that's an example, the same thing with Marcus. This is an example that we wouldn't be able to. Kieran Berry would not have been able to write his book, and and we wouldn't have been able to do what we did with the Soma Sophia if it wasn't for Arrhenius and Hippolytus trying to trying to trash Marcus. And, you know, the, uh, so um, to give you a little sample of that, I happen to have Hippolytus right here in front of me. Um, he's a crusty old character. I don't know how we ever got him over there, but but uh, anyway, um, so we have Hippolytus here. And uh, before I get into Marcus, though, uh, we had a we had a, a kind of a joke in the seventh ray, not not the green one, we had the red one, about the parrots in Libya. And I'll read you the original original of that joke here from uh, from. Uh, uh, let's see, this is from Hippolytus. And that goes this way. 
Apsuptus the Libyan, inordinately longed to become a god, but when, after repeated intrigues, he altogether failed to accomplish his desire, he nevertheless wished to appear to have become a god, and he did at all events appear, as time wore on, to have in reality become a god. And for the foolish Libyans were accustomed to sacrifice unto him, as to some divine power, supposing that they were yielding credence to a voice that came down from above, from heaven. For, collecting into one and the same cage a great number of birds, parrots, he shut them up, and now there are very many parrots, there are very many parrots throughout Libya, and very distinctly those who imitate the human voice. Now, this man, having for a time nourished the birds, was in the habit of teaching them to say, Absolutus is a god! And after, however, the birds had practiced this for a long period and were accustomed to the utterance of that which he thought, when he went said, would make it supposed that Absolutus was a god. And then, opening the habitation of the birds, he let forth his parrots, and each in a different direction, while the birds, however, were on the wing. Their sound went out all over Olivia. That picture is a god! And the expressions of those uh, reached as far as the Hellenic uh, country. And thus the Libyans, being astonished at the voice of the birds and not perceiving the knavery uh, perpetrated by Absethus, held Absethus to be a god. Someone, however, the Greeks by accurate examination, perceiving the trick of the supposed God, by means of those same parrots, not only refuted, but also destroyed the boastful and tiresome fellow. Now this Greek, by by confining many of the parrots, taught them anew to say, Absethus, having caught us, compelled us to say, Absethus is a God. But, Having heard of the recantation of the parrots, the Libyans coming together, all unanimously decided on burning absinthus. Poor absinthus. Well, we kind of improved on that a little bit uh, in the seventh ray, and we said that um, uh, there was this fellow in Libya who, who trained his parrots to say that he was a god, and then there was another adept who trained his parents to say that this first fellow was not a god. And then there was a third adept who trained his parents to say, everyone is god! And that's why today there are no parents in Libya. Okay, well then back to, back to, uh, back to uh, Hippolytus here. Now, Hippolytus, Arrhenius before him, in fact he primarily copied Arrhenius, he launched into the Gnostics in order. And this gives us uh, his his rather gritty satirical commentary on Simon Magus, which precedes, of course, precedes Marcus. And, of course, Simon Magus had quite an influence on Marcus. Now, Simon Magus, as you may remember, was almost contemporary with Jesus. He he was probably, uh, he was probably a young boy when Jesus was, was preaching, uh, and he later, as you as you probably remember, he, he tried to become one of Jesus' followers, but the rest of the apostles uh, kind of didn't want, didn't want him to because Simon had a reputation of being a conjurer, a magician, and all that. Not that Jesus wasn't, but Jesus, well, you know, Jesus was a class act, whereas Simon was, was kind of... Uh, you're kind of a stage magician, uh, and and uh, so they turned him down, and and he uh, went and created his own version of things. But Simon, uh, Simon found a courtesan, friend is a nice way of putting it, in a in a um, in a happy house in in in, uh, in Tyre, and got her out and and. Uh, and um, you know, brushed her teeth and did her hair and whatever, and declared that she was the fallen thought of God, and this was his priestess, and she was the fallen thought of God, and so Simon and his priestess went out and they they preached their their magical gospel to people, and of course, as you can probably imagine, this is where Crowley got his idea for the 
Scarlet Woman, you know, was from Simon and and Helen. He 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 named her Helen after Helen of Troy. And uh, now this had an influence on Marcus, obviously. So Marcus came along, uh, you know, after Simon, and I guess it passed away. But but Simon uh, was not just a he wasn't just a conjurer. Simon was also quite a writer, and he and he apparently had a, a rather sophisticated Gnostic philosophy, and which, uh, and quite frankly, there's one kind of ambiguous passage up here. I I won't read it because it's almost incomprehensible. But if you got if you read it over and over and over and over again, you get the idea that Simon is 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 promoting the Great I Am theory. Uh, that God is in all of us, and, 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 and wherever God is in all of us, that's the center of the universe. This, so this is something Simon was very much aware of. Of course, Jesus was aware of it too, but but almost none of the Christians understand that. The uh, so so in Arrhenius uh, and Hippolytus's um, um, march through the ancient world, they they, they deal with with Empedocles and Simon's system of threefold emanations, and and uh, they go on and on and on, and, and and they finally get to Marcus, and when they finally get to Marcus, they um, they really really, uh, I'm saying they because uh, Hippolytus is is pretty much a, a lift from from Arrhenius, who was a little who was a little bit earlier, uh, and by the time they finally get to Marcus. Um, they are really, really on a on a on a roll to try to discredit uh, discredit him, and and so what they want to do in order to discredit him, they want to first prove that he is a Pythagorean, which they they want to very much want to do, and uh, and then they they uh, they want to they want to prove that he he's also they want to prove that he's. Um, uh, he's having orgies and uh, and doing all this. For the main main reason why they want to prove him that is because Marcus, like Simon, and, and like so many of these early Christian mystics, uh, did not. He didn't think this was in, was was an all male thing. He thought that men and women ought to ought to be equally uh, involved, and 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 he, uh, like Simon, uh, thought that the woman was the more spiritual of the two. And um, so the the answer to the the way the Christian fathers looked at that was that these people must be having orgies. Oh yeah. Well, the truth is they probably weren't having that. They might have had a few, but then you know uh, they certainly were were not anywhere near as uh, as lascivious as the as the Christian fathers made them out to be. Um, I'm going to read here a little bit of um, a little bit of what uh, Arrhenius has to say about um, a little bit of what he has to say about Marcus's practices. Yeah. Okay. Here we go. Marcus Marcus's account of the birth and the life of our Lord. Here we go. Concerning the creation of this Jesus, he expresses himself thus. The powers emanating from the second triad fashioned Jesus, who appeared on earth, and that the angel Gabriel filled the place of the Logos, and the Holy Spirit, that of the soul, and the power of the highest, that of Anthropos, and the Virgin, that of Ecclesia. And so it was, in Marcus's system, that the man who appeared in accordance uh, with the dispensation was born through Mary, and when he came uh, to the water, he says, that he descended like a dove un, un, unto him who ascended above and filled the twelfth number. And in him resides the seed of these, that is, such as are sown along with him, and that descend with him, and ascend with him, and that this power which descended upon him, he says, is the seed of the Pleroma, which contains in itself both the Father and the Son, and the unnameable power of Saichi, which is recognized through these and all the aeons. 
And that seed is the spirit which is in him and spoke in him through the mouth of the son, the confession of himself as the son of man and of his being one who would manifest the father and that when this spirit came down upon Jesus, he was united with him and the savior who was of the dispensation, he says, destroyed death, whereas he made it known that the Father, Jesus, and he says that, Jesus, therefore, in the name of the man, the dispensation, that this has been set forth for the assimilation and the formation of Anthropos, who was about to descend upon him, and that when he received him unto himself, he retained possession of him, and he says that he was the Anthropos, and that he was the Logos, and that he was the Pater, and the Arthurius, and the CJ, and the Aletheia, and the Ecclesia, and so. And if you can piece your way through all of that, you're seeing, again, uh, a convoluted way of saying that that those seeds, uh, the, the seeds are, are of course, the, the the elect who hear the message, they're all the same. And he takes them all up with him, and he brings them all down with him. So he's finding uh, the, the, the seed in him finds the seed in the rest of us. Now, that's not something that the church fathers were particularly fond of. Now, um, Marcus um, actually had a, a, a kind of a magical performance that he did. And, and this is... is um, this uh, this business of of the um, uh, the mass in which the priestess, he and the priestess, uh, shared this communion. Um, I'd like to go ahead and and find a little section in here where that's described, if I can find it. And but what it basically amounts to is that he and the priestess would get up there in front of the congregation, get up on the uh, by the altar. And Marcus had this uh, this small uh, small goblet, and uh, he had a apparently had a false bottom in the goblet, on which he put concentrated wine, and the priest uh, the priestess would would get up there with a glass pitcher, clear glass pitcher, and she'd pour water into this goblet with the false uh, the false stem on it or whatever, which contained the concentrate. And it would turn into bright red, bright red wine. And then, then if that wasn't a good enough trick, then then Marcus would turn around and he had a great big chalice that he held up, and he would pour that that into the big chalice, and then that chalice would then start an, an everlasting flow. It would start over. It would start overrunning like it was a like it was a eternal fountain. And this, of course, amazed the crowd. And uh, well, this is all now according to Arrhenius, you know. So you can, yeah, you know, uh, people weren't people weren't that stupid. I mean, they 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 must. I, I'm sure they they they, they must have realized that this was stagecraft. If that was exactly what, if that's what Marcus was doing, but uh, it, it it didn't mean that they were actually performing a, a miracle. It meant that they were that they were symbolizing this this sort of thing. But of course, it it, it infuriated the, the church fathers. They thought it was in it. And, and Marcus, because he because he he uh, had a uh, a following that included a uh, at least an equal number, if not more, women. Uh, probably because he was he probably had that following because he was being so nice to the women. You know, women like to like to follow a. Uh, have a religion where they're where they're given as much respect as as the men. So so he had a number of them, and of course, naturally, that meant that he was going to get accused of of um, well, uh, whatever he you know. But regardless of that, uh, his his philosophy and his uh, his tremendous contributions to the to the to the Kabbalah uh, are, are remarkable, and this. Uh, his his cult, uh, it spread. It spread all the way from from uh, you know from Tyre and Lebanon and in, in that area, and it spread all the way over to southern France, and it got all the way up into the Rhone Rhone River Valley. And 
you know, we, I know that sounds kind of weird when you think, you think about it. And you think, oh, gosh, you know, well, is he up there with those barbarians? And, and No, I'm going to explain something here that a lot of people don't realize. The first century, second century, and all the way up through the, what we call the Dark Ages, southern France was civilized. Yeah, it was civilized. In fact, uh, this is where the King Arthur legends got started back Back, uh, you, think, you think they started in England. They didn't. They started in southern France. Southern France was civilized all through from, from early Roman times all the way up, you know, all the way up to into the Middle Ages. It didn't really become, southern France didn't become part of the rest of, of dirty, filthy, life is nasty, British and short Europe until the so-called Albigensian Crusade. And that was in the 1100s, in the high Middle Ages, when the Cathar religion. See, this is, and the reason why I'm mentioning this is because Marcus's cult, which was Hermetic, and it's been suggested also by other others that it was very Mithraic. Now, uh, I, I think we all know that the cult of Mithra, at least the, at least Western European Mithra, Mithraism, was really a, Virtually identical with Hermetic philosophy, and they're, 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 the interchange is, is so much that um, they're both they're both solar oriented, they're both uh, they're both uh, cabalistic, they're both uh, uh, they have the uh, the ladder of alchemy and the planets and all the rest of this. All the all of the the, the things that we associate with uh, with Hermetic uh, philosophy are also in Mithraism. So the two are virtually interchangeable. It's been suggested that uh, that uh, Arcus, uh, uh was influenced quite a bit by the Mithraites. Um, Constantine, you know, was was a, actually a Mithraite, and he he um, decided that make uh, Christianity the state religion in Rome because he felt that it would, uh, uh, Mithra, uh, Mithraism was too elite. Even though they had common people in Mithras that right in lodge with with uh, Roman senators and all that, they, they had common people, but it was still, it was elite in, in your, your attainments. They didn't take just anybody. You had to be worthwhile or worthy. So, Constantine thought that Christianity would be better to keep the slaves under control. And this is why he opted. He didn't become a Christian until his deathbed. He decided, well, right before he died, he maybe he better become a Christian. Otherwise, otherwise it, uh, what, he, what he had accomplished might be discredited. So he, he wanted to die a Christian, other than that. But, but um, in southern France, in that area where Marcus's cult penetrated, this was, this was a civilized area. And so consequently, that cult of Marcus's had an influence. It could have even had an influence on the Grail tradition because of the way Marcus was doing his his communion with these ever flowing this ever flowing cup and and uh and the uh water in the wine and all this. It could have very well. And it the reason why I said that in the in the the header for this uh this show that was Marcus the first Rosicrucian? Hmm. Well, obviously he wasn't, but but it, yes, but he was the first Rosicrucian in the spirit of the word, the term. Marcus was every Here we have, way back in the first century, we have a man who combines the Kabbalah, astrology, uh, maybe Illuminate Alchemy, Certainly a lot of Kabbalah, and certainly a lot of astrology, and into his his very mystical, very transcendental, and and very uh, uh, very personalized aspect of Christianity. Now how, you can't get any more Rosicrucian than that. I mean that that's that's almost a template for Rosicrucianism. And so uh, we can. So when I say was Marcus the first Rosicrucian. Well, if he wasn't, he should have been. And uh, the uh, the thing about uh, this this uh, southern uh, France uh, situation is that so much 
became in the Middle Ages and uh, in the Dark Ages and Middle Ages, so much of what became our Grail legend and our legends of chivalry and all of this, it got started right in that area. That they called, by the way, southern France, uh, that that province used to be called Languedoc, and this is where the the, the parts of all the first of the Grail romances. Uh, was written. It was written by Wolfram von Essenbach, who was a German knight. And he was an athlete, but he was also a poet. And and uh, he was a professional jouster. And he wrote he wrote this uh, this Grail romance to Parsifal, but it wasn't Christian. The Grail was a green stone that came down from the stars. And this was virtually a, 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 a a pagan kind of thing. So southern France uh, was an area where Marcus, Marcus, and his particular mystical version of Christianity could certainly obtain. Uh, let me read at this point a little bit to you from uh, um, from Kieran Mary, and then I'll read a little bit from the Seventh Ray on Marcus here. Um, Kieran Berry's book, as I say, is anybody who is really interested in this subject, Kieran Berry's book is really excellent. Here we are. The alphabet creates the cosmos. Although much of the meaning of the fragmentary Nagamati Codex we can now be only guessed at, it is clear that both Marcinus and Marcus taught that the letters of the Greek alphabet were connected with the creative powers of the cosmos. And that knowledge of the various combinations of vowels and consonants could bring about control of these powers. The Greek letters are the nomenclature of the gods and the angels. And as they are changed, they submit to the hidden gods by means of bear and pitch and silence and impulse. And this concept was central to so much of Hellenistic magic and can be seen throughout the Greek magical papyri. In the combination of vowels, later permutations, and long lists of barbarous names, and voice invoques magici that were obtained in various charms and divine invocations. Hippolytus also gives us an account of the teachings of Marcus and various other Gnostics drawing most of his material from Arrhenius, and one of these is an Arabian Gnostic named Monoemus, Monoemus, I love that, who made extensive use in his teaching of the letter Iota. Oh, you remember, uh, and Jesus said that it changed not one jot or tittle in my word. Um, the... Uh, the alphabet, as you, those of you who study astrology know, the alphabet starts in these days with Aries. But before Aries, before Alexander made the alphabet start at Aries and forced everybody to uh, accept that, the alphabet and the zodiac started with Taurus. Now, Taurus is, yeah, starting with Taurus, yeah, yeah, anyway, it started with Taurus, but it also started with Aleph, which, if you look at Aleph, Phoenician Aleph, uh, it's it's the sign of the bull. And do, do an Aleph and then and turn it with the point down, and you see there's the bull with the horns and the ears and everything, and that was, that was now, uh, you know, Moses said, uh, and put the honor of God before me. All right? Mm-hmm. Okay, so the there's the bull. That's bull L, of course. Then you know the bull was the sign of, of, of the of the great god of the of the Canaanites, the Phoenicians and which eventually um kinda got uh, forcefully transformed into uh, YHVH. But but um Taurus starts the zodiac and Aleph. And that hangs over into that Aleph, uh, an idea of the, of the Zodiac starting with Aleph and Aleph being the bull, of course, that carries over into uh, the age of Aries 
and we still keep talking about that. Now, uh, one of the books that you uh, you need if you really want to understand Marcus, uh, I would recommend I would recommend the uh, Pistis Sophia, and this is a later Gnostic text that uh, well it's, it's 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 close to it's contemporaneous with Marcus, and that answers a lot of the questions that that that. I'm sure Marcus would have answered, but but Arrhenius and Hippolytus didn't answer, and that is the relationship of, of the earlier zodiac and the letters uh, to the actual signs, the symbolism involved. Um, now, what I want to do here is is um, you have um, a um, idea of of what the Soma Sophia is all about. And one of the things that I need to stress before we get into this is that in the Valentinian system, which Marcus followed, there were 30 aeons, 30 aeons, 30, 30 levels, 30 spheres. And this was kind of unique to this this particular type of system. And And here we had this circle of the zodiac, which in Marcus's case, went all the way around, uh, you know, obviously influenced by the earlier Egyptian Nuit. But this, when you when you try to kind of unravel Dean Kelly's, uh, Kelly's Enochian tablets, try to figure out where they came from, and this aether system of 30 aethers, it, it becomes fairly obvious, at least to me, that that uh, Dean and Kelly were were groping for something that that I think Marcus had already uh, that had already solved and 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 was lost to posterity and had to be reconstructed because the Enochian tablets, with the exception of the fact that they're broken up into into all the cardinal signs, you know, the, the cardinal signs on each side rather than straight around the zodiac. Uh, which, by the way, that's a, that was a medieval kind of a thing to, to do that, to to split the signs up uh, and group them according to elements. This was a more medieval thing. The uh, the ancient Greeks wouldn't have done this, and, and they would have done it like Marcus did it, all the way around. So if we had the tablets laid out the way Marcus laid it out, we would have something that you could turn right around and apply on the earth and you could get a direct application and in those days uh, the the uh, ancient hermetic uh, astrologers they they actually thought that egypt reflected the the stars above that's one of the reasons why the pyramids were laid out the way they were, and why the Orion can be traced on the ground, if you believe that. And and uh, they had various marks, various points, where you would line up the zodiac uh, with with uh, uh, positions on the ground, like for instance the Great Pyramid or the Omphalos at Delphi, or various places like this. And you line this up, and then you can take and you can apply. All the constellations to the uh, uh, to, to the ground below, to the earth, and this, of course, as you can imagine, has a great deal of magical significance. And this is what Dee and Kelly were trying to do with their Enochian tablets. They had the these governors all uh, laid out, and if you know, if you've studied Dee and Kelly's uh, system, you know that they call this terrestrial victory. And they were, and they they laid these governors out of the, in countries all over the world, and tried to apply these Enochian governors to various areas on the ground. And then they even tried to make this archaic. They used Ptolemy's Ptolemy's maps to do it, which were outdated by then, but that's what they preferred to do. And then they tried to sell this system to. Uh, to the Polish nobility, the Polish king, uh, as a magical, political, magical tool. Well, um, the fellow they got to try to broker this thing for him was uh, uh, Prince Lasky, who I think he was uh, already 
uh, already almost banished from court, and he was a ne'er-do-well and didn't have anything. So consequently, their scheme never got off the ground, but that is what they intended to do. But but they couldn't really do it because they had, they had bifurcated their tablets. Whereas if Marcus, if they if they'd used Marcus and Soma Sophia, fully fully fleshed out, they probably would have been able to accomplish at least accomplish what they were trying to do. Now, with that in mind, I know that there are some people that are probably saying, "Well, what are we getting in all this Adokian stuff for?" Well, I think you, it, 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 I think it's fascinating to consider where Anokian where this Nokia system originally came from and where what it was inspired by. And I might mention that Nee and Kelly did not have Ethiopian Enoch. They didn't. They, 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 if they even had a copy of Slavonic Enoch, they were lucky. And I don't even think they had that. Uh, so consequently, they, they, they created, they, they, a lot of what they created was coming out of Kelly's head. And, uh, and not that that invalidates it, it's, it's just that it's just that they did not they did not have a uh, the, the biblical Enochian Enochian reference. Um, now let me uh, let us go to the seventh ray here and uh, the blurb says the Summa Sophia body of wisdom was the original cosmic Kabbalah of the Gnostic magician Marcus from the second century of the Common Era. Modern scholars now recognize the possibility that this long-lost system of celestial alphanumeric correspondences may have influenced the late Hebrew Kabbalah. It also might be the ancient prototype of the Kelly's Enochian Watchtower tablets. Working from the early Christian critic Hippolytus' minimal outline of Marcus's lost system, we've reconstructed the Soma Sophia as a philosophical and practical tool for magicians today. And so I started with this. I said, what if there was a long-lost ancient astronomical chart or manuscript that contained the philosophical and magical key to the formation of the entire universe? An elegant system of alphanumeric attributions that could be extended or reduced in infinite progression to yield precise formulas applicable to any point in the vast reaches of outer space and any place on the earth below. Such a manuscript may have existed in the second century of the Common Era, authored by the Gnostic magician Marcus and ruthlessly suppressed by his Orthodox Christian critics Early Church Fathers, Arrhenius, Hippolytus, and Aphanius, were threatened by Marcus's vision, and were so threatened that Arrhenius wrote, and the latter two recopied, a detailed outline of the basic structure of the Marcosian cosmos for the sole purpose of discrediting it, as in the case of Josephus critiquing the lost book of the Egyptian historian Manetho, we would know nothing of Marcus's remarkable achievement were it not for the overzealous efforts of his detractors. Arrhenius's original count of Marcus's Soma Sophia vision has been recopied, reprinted, and referred to by numerous critics and scholars of Gnosticism for over 1,800 years. And there is nothing secret about it, but there was far more to the system than Arrhenius revealed. It takes a magician to realize this. Arrhenius and his ilk were not magicians. And if they had been, they would probably not have published the key to reconstructing Marcus's system. And before we consider the technical details of this revelation, let us return to the era of its inception and that remarkable magician who was responsible for the Summa Sophia. Marcus was a follower and perhaps a student of the Gnostic teacher Valentinius. This can be deduced from their shared system of 30 aeons. Like his mentor, Valentinius, Marcus professed to be a Christian, but Gnostic Christianity was much different, a different philosophy than the religion of the eventual orthodoxy that St. Paul and the Emperor Constantine would impose upon the Western world. In Marcus's vision of Christianity, 
both priest and priestess gave the communion and turned water into wine by magic, which infuriated pious Christians who did not want to be reminded that this was a theatrical special effect, not a blessed miracle. Marcosians viewed the universe as a as a macrocosmic subject to microcosmic subject to microcosmic manipulation via the formulas of magic. He was a Pythagorean and a thaumaturgist. He practiced in Asia in Asia Minor, having a knowledge of Hebrew and Syriac, but he also had a following in Gaul in France. And one of Marcus's students, an Egyptian named Arnufus, was a court magician to the Roman emperor and philosopher Marcus Aurelius. With this background and focus, we can better understand the conception of his vision. Now, um, I think that we should realize that Marcus was not just a a Christian uh, uh, mystic. He was also a great, in his own right, a great Pythagorean philosopher. And I say Pythagorean philosopher because uh, this is the whole uh, Pythagorean philosophy involves these these uh, uh, mecha, these these the mechanics of the cosmos. Plato used this Pythagorean uh, conception in the Timaeus, as we all know. He used it in the Timaeus, and and uh, and as, as it's been pointed out, Plato was actually a closet Pythagorean. Uh, so. Marcus is is the forgotten man of the origins of both the Greek Kabbalah and and the Hebrew Kabbalah, and of course, if there was a Rosicrucian to be had in those days, he certainly was one. So that's our hour with Marcus the magician, Marcus the high priest of Gnostic Christianity, Marcus the originator of the Summa Sophia. Next week, we'll take off with another uh, ancient scholar, and uh, we will examine the origins of the mysteries. And until that time, good magic, and take care and be well.